She was a small girl when Hitler's forces destroyed her family. Decades later, the scars are still there. Later on today's broadcast, we'll sit down with a Holocaust survivor who challenges us to never forget Hitler's assault on the Jews. Plus, our host answers a bunch of great Bible questions, and for now, we'll take a look back at the top news stories coming out of the Middle East for the entire year. This is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Happy New Year, Charlie. Happy New Year to you, John. Well, the new year is finally here, 2023, and and you have to ask yourself, what do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? Would you like, perhaps, a reminder to pray? Yeah, and for the last time, our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Now, each month displays a beautiful image related to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. Now, this calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, this is your final chance. Visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, we thought it would be effective to take a look back at the top stories that have affected the entire Middle East region all year long, kind of sum things up and maybe uh, make some sense of it all. So that said, Charlie, let's dig in. And as we look back over the top stories this past year, certainly one of the big headlines had to be Israel's fifth election within four years. Why has their government been so unstable, I think, is the question behind all of that. And will this new government last longer than the previous ones? Yeah, you know, they're supposed to hold elections every four years, like us. So having five elections within that time does suggest political instability. Uh, The country did experience voter fatigue and voter frustration, as it seemed like politicians couldn't rise above their petty disagreements to do what was best for the nation. But When you dig below the surface, there are actually several reasons for that number of elections. The most significant is is the fact the country is deeply divided politically between secular and religious and between liberal and conservative. And add to that then the religious and ethnic divisions, and you have a fractured political landscape. It's very difficult to pull a coalition together. Prime Minister Netanyahu, well, he's also been a polarizing agent. His followers love his passion, his communication skills, his ability to successfully navigate the political minefields that have taken down so many political rivals. But there are others who are jealous of his ability to outmaneuver them politically and still others who feel burned by a string of broken promises. And as if that's not enough, there are many who believe he shouldn't be heading up the government while under indictment for corruption and while actually being tried. So can this new government last longer than the ones that went before? Well, In theory, it can, since it doesn't depend on one or two individuals to keep the coalition afloat. But the Achilles heel in this new government has to be the far-right parties headed by Smotrich and Ben Gavir. Their ideological demands could push Netanyahu into a corner, making him vulnerable to threats from the U.S. and other Western powers who are concerned about having those two factions in the coalition. And it's possible Netanyahu will renege on some of the promises he made to them to get them into the coalition, promises that actually sound rather extreme. Now, coalitions are based on trust. And right now, that level of trust in Israel after all those elections is at an all-time minimum. Governments in Israel seldom last the full four years, so it seems likely this one will also run into problems before its term ends. But hopefully, 
It will survive longer than the previous four coalitions, if only to give the people there a political breather before the next election. I'm all for this government's hanging together. <laughs> our, our second major story in 2022 was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What uh, impact did this invasion have on Israel and the rest of the Middle East, Charlie? Yeah, you know, the press focused on the impact the invasion has had on oil prices, on inflation. And, of course, we can't minimize the impact it's had on the people of Ukraine themselves. But the invasion has also impacted Israel and the other countries of the Middle East. Israel found itself trying to walk a fine line. It wanted to support Ukraine because of the large Jewish population there and also because of its relationship to Western Europe and the U.S. who are behind the Ukrainians. But at the same time, Israel faced a dilemma in its war against Iran and Hezbollah in Syria. Syria is a Russian ally, and Russia maintains major naval and air force bases in Syria, along with anti-aircraft missile defenses. Israel and Russia had set up a deconfliction mechanism to help avoid the two countries accidentally coming to blows, and that system has been working. But Russia has threatened Israel with consequences should they supply Ukraine with anti-missile defense technology. Uh, were Israel to supply Ukraine with its Iron Dome or its Arrow defense systems, Russia could close off Syrian airspace to Israeli warplanes. Now, just such a warning in the form of an anti-aircraft missile fired from a Russian-controlled system actually did take place this last year. It only happened once, and the missile was apparently fired after the Israeli plane had exited the area, but it was intended to send a message. For right now, Russia tolerates Israeli attacks in Syria as long as they're focused on Iranian and Hezbollah assets and as long as Israel doesn't do anything to tip the balance of power in Ukraine's favor in its war with Russia. Now, in terms of the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the rest of the Middle East, the major issue was food scarcity hmm. caused by delayed shipments of wheat from Ukraine and Russian ports. Both countries supply wheat to the Middle East and Africa, and cutting off those supplies raised the possibility of widespread famine. Thankfully, the grain exports did resume, but the increase in the price of wheat has also impacted that region in a very serious way economically. This is the Land of the Book from Moody Radio, a weekly one-hour broadcast that makes you feel like you're in the Middle East. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar. We're looking at top stories of 2022, and the third top story was the so-called war between wars between Israel and Iran. What new developments took place this year, and will this more covert phase continue into next year, or could it erupt into a major conflict? Well, Israel definitely became more aggressive in trying to choke off Iran's supply of advanced missiles to Hezbollah and actually became a little bit more transparent in what they were doing. And in fact, one, one report came out right at the end of the year uh, that at one attack uh, earlier in December, Israel had actually uh, attacked a specific truck within a specific convoy, a 25-truck convoy. Israel hit truck number eight, which was the one that was carrying the missiles Iran was trying to smuggle to Hezbollah. Uh, in essence, Israel was saying, we know everything that's going on. Uh, we're going to do everything possible to stop that. Now, as Iran, as a result, started shifting its smuggling routes, Israel then countered with other measures like bombing the runways of airports where supply planes were landing or attacking an airport terminal that was being used as a storage area. Israel has done a, a good job of reducing the supply of weapons from Iran to Hezbollah, but they're not able to totally eliminate them. Iran responded by using drones to attack oil tankers owned by Israeli businessmen. They also tried to target Israeli citizens in other countries like Turkey and Georgia. Now, thankfully, these attacks, at least in 2022, weren't successful. 
Iran's continuing push to expand its nuclear program and its announcement of the development of hypersonic missiles could force Israel to respond more aggressively in the coming year. Now, that could include an attack against Iran's nuclear facilities and its missile production sites. An Israeli response like that, well, that would force Iran to retaliate and would definitely become a major conflict. Now, Israel will wait as long as possible before crossing that line. But they won't sit back and allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons hmm. or a way to deliver them in a matter of minutes from Iran to Israel. Well, 2022 also saw a dramatic increase in tensions between Israel and the Palestinians. We talked about this on a number of broadcasts, Charlie. Why did this conflict uh, flare up again? Well, it's a combination of several factors, and the main one is the reality on all sides that Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas could be nearing the end of his life. He turned 87 in November, and he's not in the best of health. Uh, groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad are preparing for the battle for control of the West Bank that will begin the day after Abbas dies. The Palestinian Authority is seen as a corrupt organization and one that, in the eyes of many Palestinians, is too comfortable with Israel. Uh, groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad want to become the champions of the Palestinian cause. Many of the attacks in the West Bank over the past year were done by individuals affiliated with these groups. Their goal is to stir up trouble with Israel to help show how ineffective the Palestinian Authority really is. Now, another reason for the flare-up was the rise of right-wing political parties in Israel who are pushing for increased settler expansion in the West Bank. Some have called for Israel to annex all the land, which the Palestinians obviously see as a threat. The two groups are each claiming the same land, and both groups are now experiencing more militant elements on the fringe, pushing each side to take the initiative and to act more forcefully. Most Israelis and Palestinians want peace. But over the past year, the more radical groups on both sides are the ones who seem to have seized the initiative, hmm. and that's not a good sign. And that's a look at the top stories of 2022. Charlie, we're going to head into a brand new year, and I just want to encourage uh, listeners who are new to the broadcast to be sure they're taking full advantage of all the resources we have, including a podcast. Talk about that podcast, how it's accessed, and its benefits. Yeah, the podcast can be accessed at our website, thelandinthebook.org. Uh, the real benefit to it is uh, if you miss the program on your regular station or if you happen to be traveling and you aren't near a Moody-affiliated station, uh, you can just go online, get the podcast, and listen to our program anytime. Or if you missed something during the program or wanted to hear something again, you can go back and listen to it a second time. So it's uh, for your convenience. You can hear it at any time. Well, paused as we are at the start of a brand new year, people thinking about resolutions, why just resolve that you're going to drop a, a, an email or a postcard or a regular old greeting card to the management at this station to thank them for the land of the book? Why not just go ahead and do it? Wouldn't that be a great way to close out the year, Charlie? I think that'd be a great way to close out the year. Uh, again, uh, we're one of many programs on a radio station, and uh, the management wants to know, is it meeting a need? Is it, is it helping the people who are listening? Yeah. Uh, when they hear from listeners, it's an encouragement to them, and of course it also is an encouragement to us uh, to be able to remain on that station. Up next, Holocaust survivor Dalina Novitsky tells her story on The Land and the Book.
It's a scene that sounds eerily familiar. Enemy forces closing in on the capital of Ukraine. Gathered around the radio, a young family discussing whether to stay in Kyiv or flee for their lives. But this isn't 2022, it's 1941. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Now picture this. It's Sunday, June 22nd, 1941. Operation Barbarossa has begun, an invasion of the Soviet Union by Nazi Germany and many of its Axis allies. Nearly 4.5 million troops launch a surprise attack to realize Hitler's ambition of a vast Eastern Empire. Ultimately, it becomes the largest, deadliest military operation in history. By the time it's over, more than 800,000 Soviets are killed, with Germany suffering 775,000 casualties. Gadolina Novitsky was just three years old. Her story is our focus next here on The Land and the Book. We are so honored to be sitting down today with a Holocaust survivor who was there when that deadly offensive was launched against Ukraine. Welcome to The Land of the Book. Thank you. Really, we're, we're honored to have you. It means a lot to us. So what do you recall of that moment when your family struggled to know whether they should stay or flee Ukraine? Anything come to mind? Of course. I was three years old and nine days, to be exact, at that time. But I do remember things vividly. I remember, like, all my family, mom, dad, I'm only one child, grandparents gathered near the radio and listened to radio that the war started, mm. the war with Nazis started. And of course, between 4 and 5 a.m. that day, German bombers started to drop bombs on Kiev and advance easterly to former Soviet Union territory. Mm. I remember how we would go to bomb shelter, how it was horrible in bomb shelter. You heard airstrikes, it was very, very difficult. I didn't understand what it is. Yeah. Then I understood, yeah. of course. Yeah. We heard stories that uh, Germans in Poland and other countries, uh, they just were very bad to Jews. They killed them instantly, all of them. So we decided to leave. My father was putting military uniform and everybody was crying, uncertain of our destiny or the destiny of our father, destiny of our country. My father, Samuel, went to combat. He was a tanker. My mom took me by the end of August, and uh, we spent a couple days at uh, Kiev Railroad Station, and we hoped to the cattle train. Cars were designed for cattle, not for people. You know, there were some seats, but uh, no accommodation, no sanitary facilities, no water, no food, of course. And the train would go easterly, and Germany would advance easterly after our train. And very often, it was bombed by Messerschmitts, German bombers. And some of bomb dropped on the cars, and I saw terrible pictures, like the car was on fire near us, nearby. Mm. And uh, human bodies, part of human bodies, were scattered all over. Our car also once was bumped, but luckily, my mom took me before, because the train was staying, and we hid somewhere in the bushes or trees, I don't remember, and 
that's how she saved me. So how, how long was the ride and where did you get off when you got off? It was a couple months. This ride was a couple months. Wow. Yes, and uh, we sometimes uh, they told us that you have to get off the train and do whatever you wish, nearby villages or in the open. When you finally said, we're here, uh, this is where we're going to stay for now. Where was that location? It was Almaty, Kazakhstan. We did have some relatives, my mom's sister, and uh, we lived with them in a just small room in a basement. What are you doing now for food and for work and for money and for clothes? For clothes, whatever was on me, that's it. Whatever was on my mom, I didn't know better. And food was very, very scarce. In summer times, it was better because you can go and pick up some greens and my mom would do something like soup, whatever. And there's no food. Some potato skins from somebody else, you know, and sometimes no water. Yeah. And in, uh, in the city, I got diphtheria. I got carbon monoxide poisoning. My mm. mom saved me. I got scarlet fever. Mm. She was three years old when the Nazis invaded her city and tore her family apart. Lynn Novitsky is our guest today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. We've left our studios. We are here at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and grateful for our partnership with them. And they're making guests like Lynn available to us. So talk to us about your dad. What became of him? What were his experiences? Okay, my dad is a tanker. He's chemist. He got higher education like a chemist, but his military, uh, he was lieutenant at the end of the war. Luckily, he survived and he became captain. Two months he was teaching new tankers. Two months he went to combat. And until 1945, he was out of combat teaching in the school. In 1946, he was dismissed uh, from his military service. Do you recall the moment when you and your mom finally saw him again? I remember I cried and my mom cried. And his assignment was to go to Kiev to tell something, somebody in military, you Mm -hmm. know. Kiev was liberated in 1943, November 6th. And he came and he couldn't find the street. The whole center of Kiev was in ruins. Wow. The main thoroughfare of Kiev, Kreschatik, Mm. was absolutely in ruins. That I saw after the war. Absolutely no one building left. Mm. And he couldn't find this couldn't because find everything, it. yes. Wow. Today on The Land and the Book, we're hearing the painful story of Holocaust survivor Lynn Novitsky. And our conversation again comes to you with thanks to our wonderful friends at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. Well, a wonderful reunion with your father for you and your mom. But it wasn't such a happy ending for everybody else, including your grandparents. Yes, I want to talk about Babi Yar a little bit, okay? Sure. Okay, when German troops entered Kyiv, they decided to do the first mass murder in the history of World War II. My maternal grandmother was left. Her daughters, my aunts, left her with caregivers. She was partially paralyzed. But, of course, she ended up in Babi Yar. She was dragged from the house, and we don't know if she was already dead, but they put her on a special vehicles which combined people on the street, dead people or nearly dead people, and bring to Babi Yar. They started, German troops decided to do this. Babi Yar, it's just simple ravine, 
but for two days, 29, September 29 and September 30, they killed 33,771 wow. Jews. But they were very meticulous. They knew what they were doing. And not only Jews, just locals, uh, POW, mentally and physically challenged. They killed people. It was very big mass murder. Meticulously, they just saw their documentation. That's how we know how many people they killed. Yeah, yeah. They wrote down, they stripped naked people, and they put them near ravine, just shoot them, and that's it. Wow. At least one and a half million Jews are estimated to have been killed in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And we're familiar with, with Auschwitz. Why do you suppose we are less familiar with the killings in Ukraine? Ukraine was part of Soviet Union, very secluded, authoritarian country. So they don't want to talk about it. They don't want you to come to Babi Yar to pray. They, in late 40s, they put garbage trucks from all over Kiev to Babi Yar to those victims, hmm. you know. What about ongoing resentment, outright hatred, uh, for what the Germans did. How do you negotiate all of that? Any nightmares? How do you deal with that? It was just slogan. Let's suppress them. Let's not talk about this. Let's talk about approaching communism. Let's rebuild our life. And about that, we will talk later on, which is absolutely wrong. Then they didn't have any monuments in Babi Yar. Only in the 70s, they put just one pretty ugly building uh, for all victims, and then they acknowledge that it was initiated for Jews. Hmm. We've left our studios today to join Lynn Novitsky at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. She is a survivor of the deadliest military operation in history and is sharing her story with us on the land and the book. Well, this is a tough question to ask, but I have to ask it. What message would you like to leave our listeners in regard to the Holocaust? What's your message? I want you to remember, because we survivors don't want our past to become your future, you have to remember that things happened and we have to work together to prevent such atrocities in future. That's, I would like people to listen. Is there anything else I have not asked you about the Holocaust that's important to you? You know, for me, three years old, but then four or five years old, the hunger was unbelievable, not only for me, for everybody else. And I don't eat too much, but I love food because, and sometimes I look at this food and I started to cry because people, not everybody got this food, not food at all. And we didn't have this. Once how my mom obtained, I don't know, hard-boiled egg. It was so delicious. And since this time, I love hard-boiled eggs from this. And very important for me, bread. And I think bread is just the core of everything. You can survive bread and water indefinitely. And I got big respect for bread. In our house, nobody would throw a piece of bread. You can make everything. And if a loaf of bread just upside down, no, 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 it's disrespectful, I would put this. Even sometimes in restaurant, even sometimes in somebody's house, if the loaf upside down. No, no, no. You have to respect bread. Bread for me is very, very important. I don't eat in my age too, too much bread, but it's a very important thing. 
I want to tell you one thing. When my father was teaching near Kazan in tank school, he asked us to come. It also took, my mom said, a couple weeks. And I do remember one on some railroad station. It was evening, I remember. It was dark. One gentleman in a very dirty apron approached us. Mind you, it was not German-occupied territory. It was Russian territory. And he approached and he said, lady, to my mom, you got some vouchers for food because my father was an officer and he, uh, we got some vouchers for food. And he said, can you give me some food, hot cereal or something because my children didn't eat today anything. He was in a very dirty apron because he helped people with their luggages to some trains. My mom said yes, and she bought for him some hot cereal, and he put in his dirty, dirty apron, and he started to cry. I remember this, and he said, thank you very much. Today my children will eat something. It was terrible. It was hunger, because all resources, resources and everything would go to the front. And children, 12, 14 years old, they were staying and producing some military equipment in Russia, yes. That's how they received the victory. It has been a journey and an honor to sit down with Dalina Novitsky. I'm sure it isn't easy to share all these details, but we're grateful that you have. You're painting pictures for us that we cannot escape and will not forget. And we want to thank you for, for your time with us. You're welcome. Well, more to come here on the program, including a visit with Dr. Charlie Dyer, who's back with a fresh set of Bible questions next on The Land and the Book. We're back here on The Land and the Book. It's John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I think one of my favorite segments, Questions and Answers, our chance to discover what's puzzling you and a chance to hear Charlie dig deep into the Word of God and give us answers that are theologically reliable and thoroughly understandable. Charlie's got a smile on his face. His Bible's open, so let's dig in with Eric's question after we uh, ask you this. Would you like some prayer reminders for 2023? I mean, the new year is quickly approaching. Before you know it, it's going to be here What do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? For me, I find uh, reminders helpful. What about you, Charlie? I find the same thing, John. And our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to land in the book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, time's getting short. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's get to Eric's question in our opening drive here toward answering as many as we can. Here's what he wants to know. Which study Bibles and translations of the Bible do you use most frequently? Yeah, I kind of have to chuckle at that. My go-to Bible when teaching is the NIV Study Bible. I use the old 1984 edition of the NIV, and I actually have had to have the cover replaced on it because I wore out the original. Now, I'm also in the process of trying to break in a copy of the New American Standard Study Bible. It contains the NIV notes, but 
the New American Standard Translation. And the NASB is my favorite translation, though I use the NIV when I'm out speaking because it's the translation used, at least right now, in the majority of places where I teach. Now, I also have the Holman Christian Standard Bible on my shelf, and I do use it. I have the English Standard Version, though for some reason I've just not been attracted to it. I know, though, that many do use it and they appreciate it. Of course, I still have my King James Version, my New King James Version here within arm's reach. And when it comes to studying, I have two software programs on my computer, Accordance and Lagos. And I like both of them. What I like about them is I can open up multiple translations at the same time without filling up my desk. And then when it comes to commentaries, well, I still like the old two-volume Bible Knowledge Commentary and the one-volume Moody Bible Commentary. And I like the multi-volume Expositor's Bible Commentary series. And I like John MacArthur's multi-volume set on the New Testament. And then I look around and the rest of my shelves are filled with many other books I use on occasion. But those are the ones I probably find most useful most of the time. Michelle asks, could you please direct me to someone that has recorded a tour of Israel? I'm disabled and don't have the money to get to Israel, but would love to watch it on my TV and feel like I'm there. Any thoughts, Charlie? Well, yeah, I'm not familiar with someone who's actually recorded a tour of Israel, though I'm sure there have to be some out there. But I do have some suggestions. First, go to the Land in the Book Facebook page and watch the videos that I've posted there over the past several years. Uh, whenever I'm in Israel, I'm trying to post a daily video Uh, showing what we're seeing. Now, some of them are often music and no speaking, but they'll still give you a day-by-day perspective on what could be seen on a tour. And they're all free. A second option is Ray Vanderlaan's series of videos called That the World May Know. They're well done. They include great photography along with his teaching. And uh, many churches have those in their library. So you may want to check there That the World May Know video series. Uh, I've also just written Experiencing the Land of the Book. That's that new book we talked about uh, some time ago. Uh, but it's a written tour through Israel with each chapter focusing on one of the sites that tourists visit. And it also has 250 color photos. But my goal in it is to have a written tour of Israel in that one book. Anyway, all of those are possibilities that could get you looking at Israel and touring it without actually having to go. That's Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. It's Q&A, your questions and Charlie's answers. Steve says, in Numbers chapter 12, I read where Miriam is stricken with a skin disease. I don't read where Aaron gets any punishment for having done the same thing Miriam did. Do you have any insight? Well, I see two hints in that text that do help. First, in verse 1, uh, it lists Miriam before Aaron, suggesting she might have been the one who took the lead in that complaint against Moses. Now, the order we would have expected back then would have been to list Aaron first, and that's actually what we find as the story continues in verse 4. It's clear that both Miriam and Aaron sinned and that God was angry with both, but it is possible that the judgment on Miriam was greater because she's the one who led Aaron into sin. But I think there's a second and perhaps even greater reason Miriam was punished while Aaron was not. She was a prophetess, but Aaron was serving as Israel's high priest. Had God made Aaron leprous? He would have been disqualified from serving in that capacity, and and that would have left the entire nation without a high priest who could intercede for them before God. It's possible God spared Aaron because of his kindness to the entire nation. Now, thankfully, even the punishment inflicted by God on Miriam was only temporary. After seven days, God healed her, which is why she was allowed back into the camp. Well, thank you for that answer, Charlie. Let's go to Bob's question. He listens to us on KHCB in Houston. Frequently, he says, I hear that premillennialism began with John Darby, but that doesn't seem to be correct. What was the Chileism debate, and how did it differ from the post-pre- and ah-millennial debate nowadays? Yeah, and he's right. There there is a Chileastic or Chileastic debate in the early church, 
Uh, Kiliasm is not the same as dispensationalism. It actually comes from the Greek word uh, that refers to a thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, A kiliasm was that word for thousand. Uh, Most church historians acknowledge in the first two centuries of the church, a literal understanding of Revelation 20 was the dominant view. And it wasn't until the rise of the allegorical method of interpretation, which arose in the Alexandrian area, that kiliasm was overtaken. Or, to put it another way, the early church fathers took a more literal interpretation that was eventually supplanted by an allegorical interpretation of the Bible. Now, that's not the same as the pre-mill versus ah-mill debate, though they do share the same starting point. How do you approach Bible prophecy? Do we take it literally, or do we look for a deeper, hidden, spiritual interpretation? And that's still the basic dividing line for the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, One last point, though. There's a book that addresses, I think, an incorrect view on dispensationalism, saying it began with John Darby. Uh, The author is William C. Watson, and his work is Dispensationalism Before Darby. You can find it on Amazon, and it's worth checking out. And he shows that Darby didn't invent this. He was following in a long line of churchmen who held many of the beliefs later championed by Darby. Donna says, in my Bible translation, the word prince comes from two different original language words in Daniel 10 through 12 and Ezekiel 38 and 39. So I'm wondering whether that is because one is Aramaic versus Hebrew or if there is some inherent meaning difference between the two. Both seem to be translated as chief, ruler, prince, or leader. Also, is there any inherent meaning in the word nasi that keeps it from referring to a spirit or non-human ruler? Yeah, now a lot of people are going, what? Yeah, but here's, I'm one here's of them. The, uh, yeah, both of those words are Hebrew, not so it's not an Aramaic versus Hebrew distinction. And there are times when a writer just chose a word for a particular reason. So even though Ezekiel and Daniel are both living in Babylon at the same time, I think there's probably a personal preference that caused them to use a particular word. Uh, now that word nasi comes from a root that has the idea of lifting or carrying. It has the idea of a person who's been lifted up or raised up to a position of leadership. Daniel does appear to use the other term, sar, to refer to angelic beings in chapters 10 to 12, but Ezekiel uses that same word to refer to human leaders, some of whom he mentions by name in chapter 11 of his book. Uh, The word sar comes from a root that has the idea of rising in splendor. It's used to describe something like a sunrise and seems to describe an individual elevated to a position from a military captain to a city magistrate. Now, here's the interesting thing for that last part. I don't see anything inherent in the word nasi that would keep it from referring to a non-human ruler or spirit. But at the same time, I don't see any occurrences in the Old Testament where it's used of anyone who is not a human ruler. Here's a question from Connie. She says, I'm an avid reader of Christian books and have read many about the Holocaust. In my prayers, I beg God to forgive my question about why he did not intervene during that time to save his people. I'll never understand it. Can you shed some light on my question here? Yeah, and i got to start by saying I don't want to trivialize the horror of the Holocaust by somehow trying to provide a simplistic answer to a very horrific event. The Holocaust displayed the reality of humanity's capacity for evil, and it showed the reality of the satanic roots of anti-Semitism. God may have permitted it to happen, but he in no way approved of that evil. However, as only God can do, he was able to bring about good from that evil of the Holocaust. Uh, The Holocaust was the impetus that finally brought about the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. Promises had been made during World War I. They had just, people forgot about them. They had remained unfulfilled. It took the Holocaust to energize both the governments of the world and the Jewish survivors to realize the importance of reestablishing Israel. That was a good result, but it in no way excuses the evil that was done. 
you know, what comes to mind to me are the words of Joseph to his brothers in Genesis 50. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And I think the establishment of the state of Israel is one good thing God brought out of the Holocaust. Well, fascinating look at questions, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. You can always hear our program again at the website, thelandandthebook.org. But we're not done yet. No, Charlie's devotional is next. It's a favorite segment of many. So keep it right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. So here we sit, poised at the beginning of a brand new year. And Charlie, I'm wondering, is the best resolution to make no resolutions, given my past history? (laughs) Maybe a lot of (laughs) listeners are thinking that. Yeah, John, it sounds like you and I have the same track record when it comes to New Year's resolutions. But this year, we might have one that I'll share that maybe we can keep. I'll look forward to that in your devotional coming up here on this program that we call The Land and the Book, in case you just joined us. And in case you did, we like to share the microphone with people who have been to the Holy Land and now maybe read a passage of Scripture differently or see the Bible differently. Check out this one, for example. Hi, my name is Renee Pechuk, and uh, I just can't even begin to explain the experiences here at the land. And probably the most favorite part that I had was the devotionals that we would have at each stop along the way. Uh, Charlie Dyer just has such a spiritual gift of opening the Word to us. And as we looked around at exactly the places we were at, we could actually picture it and visualize in our minds the actual events that happened that are recorded in the Bible. Word for word, everything is proven. It is awesome. Hi, my name's Larry Hughes. This is my first trip to Israel. Uh, the thing that impressed me the most is that uh, we've learned so much and that Charlie helps to make the Bible come alive. And uh, I don't think I'll ever read it quite the same. And um, we'll be able to read the scriptures and actually see the places that that uh, these things all occurred where Jesus walked and preached and so forth. It's been real interesting and I've really enjoyed it. You know, a visit to the Holy Land has a way of burning images on our hearts and minds that never, ever go away. And I think that's a good thing. All right, Charlie, here we are on this uh, last broadcast of the year. Question, shall we uh, resolve not to have resolutions or should we maybe uh, give it a second thought? Well, let's choose one resolution. Uh, Let me explain what I mean. All right. In just a few days, we'll all be ushering in a new Mm -hmm. year. And for many, the start of the new year brings these New Year's resolutions. Hmm. Uh, Such resolutions, you know, really aren't a bad idea, but the secret to success, and this is probably where we went wrong, is follow through. Good intentions alone aren't enough. In fact, Jesus made that very clear. Okay. okay, well, listen to the message at the very end of I'm that listening. I'm listening. time we often call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus delivered his message on a mountainside somewhere in Galilee. We're not told where, but the traditional Mount of Beatitudes is a nice spot to commemorate the event. Its nearness to Capernaum certainly matches the order of events described in Matthew. And whether or not it's the exact spot, it's that good place to visualize uh, his amazing message. The exact spot where the message was given might not be known, but the message itself is unforgettable. Jesus, the master teacher, laid out the true understanding of what a follower of God was to be like, and the picture was far different from the one painted by the religious leaders of that day. 
When it came time to draw his message to a close, Jesus dramatically described two possible responses. And his closing illustration came right from the construction projects dotting the hillsides in Galilee. It was a story of two builders and one storm that brought about two very different results. So put on your hard hat and follow me out to two construction sites described by Jesus. The house at the first construction site seems to be progressing slowly and it's quickly apparent why. The homeowner selected a building site on a hillside which had a large bed of limestone partially exposed. This ledge of hard limestone was tilted at a slight angle and the upper portion was originally covered with soil. The homeowner had to scrape away a good deal of soil to expose the bedrock and then he had to chisel away some of that bedrock to level out his foundation. Because of all his extra work in preparing the foundation, the walls are only partially built. He has weeks of hard work left until he can move his family into his house. My wife and I like watching Love It or List It, that program on television. Uh, the program itself is very formulaic. Uh, you know that the house being remodeled is going to run into problems that will eat into the renovation budget. The problems almost always are with things that weren't visible until the drywall was pulled off, the ceiling torn down, or the floor taken up. Only then do the workers discover the cracked foundation, defective wiring, clogged pipes, and other hidden flaws that need to be fixed and that suck up much of the budget for the project. And this first home builder must have felt the same way. Hacking a foundation into solid rock was hard work. It added time and expense to the project without contributing anything of apparent value to the house itself. Once the house was done, nobody would see all the work that went into preparing that foundation. Don't get me wrong, all the foundation work was valuable, but its value was hidden. Now, let's head down into the valley to see our second building project. And I can tell by your oohs and ahs that you're impressed. This house is much farther along. The walls are all done and the roof is almost in place. This house will be completed and occupied before the walls are even up on the first house. How did the builder get so far ahead? He would say the secret was the soil. Instead of trying to hack a level foundation onto a rocky, uneven hillside, the builder found a flat spot in a fertile valley. In Jesus' story, we read that he built his house on sand, and we picture a house on the beach next to the ocean. The word Jesus used can refer to sand, but it can also refer to alluvial soil, powdery soil with no rocks. Israel has some stretches of sand along the Mediterranean coast, but most people didn't live in that area. But the valleys in Lower Galilee are filled with alluvial soil, and it would be very easy to find a flat spot there to build a house, especially in the summer when the ground is hard and dry. Two men built similar houses. One required far more effort. And as the two men walked into their homes on a quiet fall night, it seemed like the wise man was the one who had all the benefits without having to expend all the energy. But that's when the storm of the century hit. A few years ago, we got to see one of these storms during a land in the book trip to Israel. We were in the Jezreel Valley, about to visit Megiddo, when the heavens opened up. Water poured off the hillside at Megiddo, creating a stream inside the visitor center. We had to give up and head back to the bus and then drive through a gully washer of a storm to reach our hotel. And Jesus describes just such a storm. 
The rains came down, the rivers and streams filled and then overflowed their banks, and wild gusts of wind whipped through the valleys, blasting against anything standing in their path. And suddenly it became clear who was really wise and who was foolish. The man who built his house on the sandy alluvial soil realized too late that the soil was so smooth because it had been deposited in the valley during some previous storm. He had built his house on a floodplain. We've all seen pictures of houses caught in floods and watched news footage of those homes collapsing into heaps of rubble and getting pushed along by a raging torrent. As Jesus said, the collapse of the house caught in the flood was great. Jesus certainly had a vivid closing illustration for his message. But what does his story have to do with us and with a New Year's resolution? Jesus' point in his story was that the two builders represented the two responses people could have to his message. The wise builder was the one who heard and decided to put Jesus' words into practice. This involved effort and hard work, but it resulted in a strong spiritual foundation. The foolish person was the one who heard Jesus' words but decided there had to be an easier way and refused to put them into practice. The houses looked similar, and certainly the one took less effort. But the difference became apparent when the storms hit. And that brings me back to the issue of a New Year's resolution. What does the New Year hold in store for you? I'm not a prophet, but I do know that life is full of uncertainties and that this year will bring its share of storms. Why not resolve this coming year to be a true follower of Jesus, to read his word and to put into practice that word in your life? Focus on your spiritual foundation. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I do know that a life that is built on a solid foundation is able to weather whatever storms might be in the forecast. Thanks, Charlie. And you can bank on the fact that there will be storms in the forecast, no question about it. But as we know who holds tomorrow, you and I can take courage, right? If you'd like to play today's devotional again, play the entire program again, it's available at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Well, rather than add another resolution to your list, why not just decide you're going to do this today? Send a a text or an email or maybe even make a phone call in the voicemail at this radio station that carries the land and the book to encourage them to say thank you for carrying the program. You know, they've got so many other folks who would love to have this slot, and yet they have graciously allowed us to be here with you week after week. Would you thank them? And thanks for remembering that you can always share your thoughts, your ideas, at our email address, thelandandthebook at moody.edu, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Your thoughts, your questions, your perspectives, always welcome. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening.